This morning, uh, we're going to continue in the book of Acts. Uh, one of the things that we want to acknowledge, too, is just um, we're encouraged and thankful for the Supreme Court's decision on Friday uh, that allows the church to, to be able to meet indoors. Um, and with that, we also want to say with that that, um, that we still have that same commitment to safety, right? So um, that's still a part of uh, of who we are and um, and in how we're gathering, and so we want to continue to uh, to gather safely, to meet safely. Uh, the second thing is just the gospel. The gospel as a whole informs us how we choose to live, and so the gospel of Christ actually stands out to us in the fact that the gospel allows us to, one, acknowledge our imperfection and acknowledge the imperfection of others, and it allows us to love one another when we're in disagreement, and it allows us to love one another when we feel offended, and that's the beauty of the gospel. We live in a a culture today that's known for cancel culture, right? We hear that all the time. We want to cancel history. We want to cancel people who say something that we don't like. We want to throw it all away. But the gospel informs us how our response should be. And our response is one that we love in spite of disagreement, that we love in spite of whether somebody is with us or against us. But the gospel gives us that hope. Right now, one of the greatest things that the world is in need of, which is a constancy, not just in COVID, but in all seasons, is the gospel. And right now, the answer of the gospel is louder and clearer than ever, because we have a world that's in desperate need of it. We have a world responding in ways that are contrary to the gospel. What do you do if you're an imperfect person and you make a wrong statement? What do you do if you acknowledge past failure? Where do you go? What do you do when somebody shuts you out because they don't agree with you? They don't like what you said. They don't like what you've done. Where we go is the gospel. The gospel informs how we're to respond. And this morning, as we look at Acts, we're going to complete this kind of short three-part interlude that we've been dealing with over the last previous two weeks, and then kind of conclude this week at the latter part of Acts 16, and then all of Acts 17. In fact, what we saw in this kind of short section of Acts here was that God addressed God's own role, His own role in salvation. He's the one that opens hearts. He's the one that opens up the bondage that frees us from sin that allows us to proclaim the gospel not only with our words, but with our lives. Last week, we looked at man's response to the gospel. So first, how God responds in terms of opening hearts, and then man's response. And we saw that man's response could be kind of this initial resistance, or this opposition, or as he said, the ones that were noble, the ones of godly character, responded with eager anticipation or eager acceptance of the gospel. Well, this week, we're going to look at what the motivation for proclaiming the gospel is. So first, we saw a picture of God's role 
in the proclamation of the gospel. Then we saw man's response to the gospel. And then this week we're going to see the motivation for proclaiming the gospel, the thing that motivates us. So let's go ahead and take a look together in Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin in verse 16, and we're going to go through the end there in verse 34. And this is what it says. It says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Lord, may we grasp today your glory. And may it be your glory that motivates us to proclaim your gospel. May it be you and your work, your beauty, your greatness, your goodness that provokes us to proclaim your truth, that causes us to share the hope of the gospel. God, may we see your beauty in the face 
of the darkness of this life and of the decay of this life. Lord God, speak through me this morning. Open our hearts together to hear your word. Lord, put down any distractions within our own hearts this morning in the name of Jesus and any new work of the enemy to disrupt or destroy. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Where's Aubrey at? Can you come up here with me just for a quick second? I know, I'm going to put her on the spot. I'm going to put my mask on with her too, okay? Okay, so Aubrey, I want you to tell me your absolute favorite restaurant. In and out. Perfect, okay. Good. All right. What do you like to eat at In and Out? Hamburger fries and lemonade. Hamburger fries and lemonade. Perfect. All right. So if you were going to describe that hamburger to me in all of its goodness, what would you, how would you say it? How would you describe it? If you were telling your friend how delicious uh, a In-N-Out hamburger is, what would you tell him? Is it juicy? No. Okay. All right. Um, what's your favorite part of the hamburger? Is it pickles, mustard, ketchup? You don't have any of that. Okay. Cheese? Do you have any of that either? Perfect, okay? All right. So if you were going to convince me why I should eat a, an In-N-Out hamburger instead of a McDonald's hamburger, what would be the difference, do you think? Like, what would you tell me? It just tastes better? Yeah, okay. How about the fries? Yeah? yeah? What do you like about the fries? Yeah, okay, they're salty. What's that, salty? What else? Okay. Are they crispy? Yeah, okay, okay. Perfect. How about that lemonade? What would you tell me about that lemonade? Just sweet? Okay. So you would say that you would, you would say that In-N-Out Burger is better than McDonald's? Is it better than Burger King? Okay. How about better than Taco Bell? Okay. Um, so your favorite place is In-N-Out. So if you had to choose a place to go to for lunch, you would choose In-N-Out Burger. Perfect. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for coming up. I know that sounds kind of funny that I asked you that question. So for most of us, we know why we like something, but we have a hard time explaining why. And we can actually say that, yes, this is delicious, this is good, but we're not sure quite how to describe the goodness. Some of us can be really descriptive, and some of us can, can actually share it, but a lot of us, we kind of, we're not sure how to describe the goodness. We just know it's good. We know it's great. Well, that's kind of like the gospel, but it's even more like the glory of God. Growing up in the church, for me, understanding the glory of God was something that was very difficult. I knew that I was to proclaim the gospel of Christ. I knew that the gospel was the hope, but I didn't really understand what the glory of God meant. I knew it meant majestic. I knew it meant beautiful. 
But what did that really have to do with God? Well, here's the center part of this passage. It's the idea that God's glory motivates us to proclaim and live the gospel. God's glory motivates us to to live and proclaim the gospel, or to proclaim and live the gospel. It's God's glory. What happens is if we lose sight of God's glory, we'll lose a passion for the gospel, and we'll lose a passion to live for the gospel. See, for many of us, the proclamation of the gospel and the living out of the gospel is just one more thing to do. But when we understand and are actually able to understand in depth the glory of God, it's no longer something that we have to do. It's no longer simply a task, but it's something that we get to do. It's kind of like Aubrey taking and saying, listen, listen, don't go to McDonald's, go to In-N-Out. Why? Because it's good. And when I can see the goodness of one place, I prefer that goodness to other things. When I can see the goodness of God and the greatness of God, I will prefer it to all other things. It won't be a task. It'll be a joy. Very seldom do people ever say going to a restaurant is a task, right? You say, I go out to dinner. It's precisely because it's not a task, right? The glory of God is the same way. When we understand the glory of God and we understand and grasp this, it will be the thing that motivates us to proclaim the gospel and live for the gospel. So Paul, it says here, is come to Athens. And we know that he came from Athens after having been persecuted both in Thessalonica and Berea after sharing the gospel. And as he's waiting, it says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city that was full of idols. Now, the Roman historian Petronius said this. He said, in Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. Athens was known for this this pantheistic, this, this idea that there were gods everywhere. And so, Paul doesn't sit idle. He goes to the synagogue And he goes to the marketplace to proclaim the gospel. He doesn't just reside in the building, but he goes outside of the building. He doesn't just meet with Jews, but he meets with the Greeks. He goes, in essence, where they're at. Warren Wearsby points out, Therefore he used what opportunities were available to share the good news of the gospel. As was his custom, he dialogued in the synagogue with the Jews, but he also witnessed in the marketplace to the Greeks. Anyone who was willing to talk was welcomed by Paul to his kind of, quote, daily classes. So Paul went where they were. And we're told here in verse 18 that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, that word babbler in in Greek is the word seed picker. It's the idea that he's taking ideas that are not his own and he's picking them up and he's kind of throwing them out as clever by himself. It's, it's basically somebody who, who comes in and plagiarizes somebody else's ideas and then tries to pre- present them so that, that he looks smart, he looks intelligent. And so they're kind of poking fun at him. 
But then notice what it says. It said, others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we, know, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So Paul is provoked by the idols. He sees the things in his world that people are worshiping and he says there is one to be worshiped. I wonder sometimes if that's how we should be responding to the gospel, or maybe the better way to put it is, we should be responding to the gospel in this way, and how often we let that go by. We live in a world where people worship all kinds of idols. And does it provoke us to proclaim His glory? Does it provoke us to be sharing the hope of Jesus Christ? Does it provoke us to be telling of who God really is? So Paul was provoked. Now, the Epicureans, they sought to please the the multiple gods by offering them the very best of fine living in temples. And they sought pleasure in the best of this life. That's what the Epicureans thought. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed that the reality was identical to divinity. And they viewed themselves as self-sufficient. The universe was identical with God, and therefore they could please the universe through their self-discipline and reason. Now, when we read these passages sometimes, I think that we can feel like they're far-fetched. But the Epicureans and the Stoics are really no different than the culture that we live in today. We hear people talk about the universe all the time. This idea of self-sufficiency, this idea of God helps those who help themselves, which is not biblical, by the way. That's a saying that has been thrown out to people, but it's not a biblical saying. It was never found in Scripture. The premise of me coming alongside and pursuing Christ is central and key, but we don't find God in our own self-sufficiency. And God is not found simply by living a self-disciplined life. God is not found or pleased because we make temples and pursue materialistic things. He's not impressed by what we have or even the abilities that we have because He is the creator of those things. See, these philosophers wanted their intellect tickled. And so they wanted to hear something new. Teach us this new thing because It seems strange to us. Brian Bell points out that what's not needed is newness in doctrine, but freshness in doctrine. What we should be seeking is freshness in doctrine, not newness in doctrine. God is unchanging, and therefore we seek freshness in relationship with Him, not newness. So in verse 22 and 23, Paul responds by saying, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. How does he start? He acknowledges that they're searching for something. Can you see it here in Sonoma County? A county which is very spiritual, but dare I say godless? People talk about the crystals and the power that they have. 
We, we speak of, of things around us and we speak of the ever-distant God or the universe. Religious, but void of the hope in Christ. Void of the truth. He says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he takes this idea. The Stoics and the Epicureans were afraid that they might have missed one of the gods. And so they kept this statue that was there as one that, guess what, there might be another god that we missed. And what Paul says is, listen, you didn't miss another god, you missed the god. And he proclaims it to them. He immediately turns it around and says, this is a religious people Let me tell you the truth about the God. This one that you've missed, yes, you've missed him, but it's not one among many. It is the one. And he proclaims it. You see, the gospel is about the glory of God. And God's glory has been defined by some as the external manifestation of the beauty of his being. It's what's being seen in God's beauty, in his goodness, in his greatness. John Piper calls it the public display of the infinite beauty and worth of God. It's those things that we can see that God has shown us about who He is. And so the the motivating glory of God then is proclaimed. This, This glory of God that actually motivates us to proclaim the gospel. And notice what He proclaims. The very first thing He proclaims is that God is Lord over all creation. God is Lord over all creation. Verses 24 and 25, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He strikes down the Epicureans right there, those who are trying to build massive temples to God, believing that gods would be pleased with these massive temples. He says, Does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. God is not pleased with just self-discipline and and reason. He's not intrigued by our intellect. And he goes on, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Life and breath and everything. God is the Lord over all creation. There's an excellent book out by Matt Chandler called The Explicit Gospel. And the one reason I love the reading of that book is because it reminds us that the gospel is not just man being redeemed, but it's God's creation being redeemed. And sometimes what happens is we only share that man is need of restoration, that man needs restoration, that humanity needs to be restored. And we forget that God has given us his creation to help us see the decay and power of sin. One of the things I share with my kids is that Yosemite or Yellowstone or the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen in your life is in a state of decay. It's completely imperfect and broken because of sin. And that when God comes and restores his creation, it'll be more magnificent and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. 
to think that Yosemite is broken, fallen, and decaying. Isn't that interesting? That actually should provoke us to realizing that, guess what? God is more beautiful than we can even comprehend. His perfection and His glory is beyond anything that we can even really fully imagine. But we can actually see His glory even in a fallen and broken creation. That beauty in something fallen is magnificent beyond what we can even think in perfection. And so we can use things around us. We can see the things of of the state of decay. One of the things today that we we often hear, whether it's global warming or, or different environmental issues, and I will say this, regardless of where you land on any of those issues, as Christians, our response should not be one of debate, but it should be one of proclamation. What do I mean? It is to our advantage that the world is being seen as in a state of decay. Because it is there that the gospel is fulfilled in Romans 8, and the creation groans until the coming of Christ. That all men can see that creation is broken and fallen. And that's an opportunity for us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. That he is Lord over all creation. That we can take that and say, guess what? This is a bridge. You've put it on the platter. This is a wonderful bridge. Part of it means that we have to be more gospel-minded than politically-minded. And part of it means that we have to be more gospel-minded than worldly-minded. And more gospel-minded than even sometimes preference-minded. Sometimes we feel the need to bring correction and be right rather than seeing that God has given us opportunities to proclaim the gospel in power and in truth. We see things today, things like the rainbow, It's being used for all kinds of things like diversity and and, and all kinds of things to symbolize things that God didn't ever intend it to be. But instead of being bothered by that, shouldn't we also find that it would be a wonderful bridge to look and say, isn't it great that God gave the rainbow to remind us that he will never destroy us in his wrath again through rain, but he will at the end times come and deal with all people who are unrepentant before him? These are natural bridges that God has given us for the proclamation of his gospel. And so what does Paul do? He proclaims that God is Lord over all creation. Psalm 19.1 points out, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Psalm 59-12, through 12, God says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God is Lord over it all. 
One pastor puts it this way, he says, so every aspect of creation from the largest galaxy to the tiniest burst of flavor in food or drink or seasoning radiates the goodness of God. Everything declares that in the beginning God made me. And that's why it says in Romans 1, 19-20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So what's the second thing that He proclaims? The first being that God is Lord over all creation. The second thing that Paul proclaims about God's glory is that man is created to glorify God. Man is created to glorify God. It says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. What were we created for? We were created to seek God. Why? Why did God create us to seek Him? Is it because He needed a relationship with us? Did He, he, he need our giftings and our talents and our abilities? Well, Isaiah 43, 6-7 says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. What were we created for? We were actually created for His glory. And so we're actually made to to seek God. We're created to seek God for His glory. See, God had actually created or appointed a people that were going to proclaim His glory to the nations. God had promised to redeem a people for Himself so that His glory might be known. And we're told that people was the people of Israel. But in Ezekiel 36, 20-23, He tells us, But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned My holy name. In that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of His land. But I had concern for my holy name, which is the house of Israel, had profaned among the nations which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. So God had appointed a redeemed people for Himself to proclaim His name. And it didn't happen. But notice, that's the beauty of the gospel. God's promise was not thwarted. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that God has now appointed a people among the nations to proclaim His glory. That we were created 
for his glory. That was the purpose that God redeemed a people for himself so that the world may know his glory. Now there's an implication here at the end of verse 27. He says, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The truth is we can't find God on our own. He comes to us. He's near. So he's saying, John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, adds, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is the beauty that we have in this, is that God is doing the redeeming work and that man has been created to reflect his glory, to bear his glory to the nations of the world. And that God's promise of a people redeemed for himself did not go unfulfilled, but was found amongst Jew and Gentile alike through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, how is God's glory revealed through a redeemed people? If God has set us apart to reveal his glory, how is God's glory revealed through redeemed people? Zach, come on up here for me real quick. If you could make a God, what would God look like? Take a stab at it. Okay, okay. So when you picture God, how do you picture God? Is he small? What is he? Would you say he's big? Okay. Uh, Is he good looking like me? Yeah! Outstanding. That's a win for you. Um, Lisa, see, they did say it. He said it. Uh, How else do you picture God? You ever have this picture of when you sing a song, God holds the whole world in his hand? You ever have this picture that God's just holding it and the world's this tiny thing? You know that little song? Got the whole world in his hand? Yeah? Okay. Okay. Any other way that you can think of God? Okay, okay. So let's not talk about God, but let's say something that you, if you were to build a God, what would that God look like? Any thoughts? Be made out of Legos? Okay. I know I'm putting you on the spot. What's that? A squid. A squid. Interesting. Why a squid? Because it'd be funny. Okay. Perfect. Zach, thanks for jumping up here. That's good. Right? So the truth is, is that we can often try to make God into our own image. And we can decide that there are times where we want God to be something that God does not say that he is. And so the first way that the God's glory is revealed through redeemed people is by a humble focus on the known glory of God. A humble focus on the known glory of God. 
basically not making God into our own image. We don't get to define what love is. God gets to define what love is. God defines how people thrive in Christ and in relationship with one another. Not us. Verse 29 says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. It is easy at times as followers of Christ to want to make God into our own image. And we come up with things that, that are different than what God actually says about himself. The truth is, is that, that we ought to be angered by the things that anger God. And we ought to rejoice with the things that God rejoices in. And we ought to weep with people who weep. And we ought to celebrate with those who celebrate. But we need to understand that God is not formed in man's image, but rather we are formed in his image. And we are not to make God into our own image, but we are to humbly focus on the known or revealed glory of God. When we're prideful, we'll make God into any image we want. We'll use grace as an excuse to sin. We'll say that love is basically everything that is tolerant. will stand for quote-unquote righteousness when God is no longer standing but forgiving. God reveals His glory through a people who have a humble focus on His known glory. Isaiah 2, 8-11 through 11 says, Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The contrast is, has the gospel humbled you or will God humble you when He returns? Has the gospel humbled you or will God humble you when He returns? The second aspect of a redeemed people who are living out and revealing God's glory is first, excuse me, is secondly, an urgent relationship with repentance. An urgent relationship with repentance. Urgency. Notice what he says, the times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That means that when God exposes sins in our life, we urgently repent. As followers of Christ, we don't delay. We don't say, hey, tomorrow let's go do this. Now some of us Get stuck there, right? We all have different sins that we hang on to more than others. But what he's saying here is that we need to be a people who when that sin is revealed in our life, we need to have an urgency towards, relationship, towards repentance. It needs to move us quickly towards repentance. Romans 3, 23 through 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by this grace as a gift. Most of us know verse 23. But listen to 24 and 5. 
and are justified by this grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How is the gospel received? It's received through repentance and faith. And every day as we live out our faith, even though God has already applied his blood to us through repentance and faith, we need to be a repenting people that when God exposes sin in our life, the gospel is pushing that out of our life and it is in that that God is glorified. We need to be a people who are urgently repenting of sin. Not, hey God, I'll deal with that later. I'll deal with it when it's more comfortable. I'll deal with it when it's easy. I'll deal with it when it doesn't benefit me anymore. Romans 25 goes on and it says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Finally, we're told in verse 32 through 34, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areagabite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. It's a persevering witness. God's glory is seen in a redeemed people through a persevering witness. First, it's seen by a humble focus on the known or revealed glory of God. Secondly, it's seen through an urgent relationship with repentance. And third, it's seen through a persevering witness. Paul did not let those who mocked him discourage him from proclaiming the gospel. He knew that the glory of God was more important than a person's mockery or acceptance. And he knew the glory of God was more important in the life of that person. We need to be a people who are motivated by the beauty of God, the God who is Lord over all creation, and the God who has made us for His purpose to glorify Him. 2 Corinthians 2, 12-17 says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. A redeemed people are to be an aroma to the world, a fragrant aroma. It changes the way that we approach how we live in this world. Rather than being known for all of our opinions, and our thoughts were known for the fragrance of Jesus. What a difference that would be. As followers of Christ, if the glory of God is our motivation, understanding that it's God's beauty and magnificent that drives us forward, not some sense of duty, and more of that, that it is in His glory that we're motivated to be an aroma and a fragrance for the world. When you go to Disneyland, 
they pipe in the smell of churros. And you're drawn to the churro stand. In the same way, as followers of Christ, we're to be the piped-in glory of God. And we are to be fragrant and an aroma that when people see us, they are drawn to God's glory. May that be our prayer this morning. That God's glory motivates us to be proclaimers of his truth and that we would be a redeemed people who live out that truth as an aroma. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your glory that you've revealed to us. Thanks for not hiding it from us, but allowing us to see it. And when we see it, God, may it move us forward in proclaiming your gospel in power. May it move us forward telling of your greatness and allowing you to open our eyes to see your greatness and your goodness. May we be a fragrant aroma to those around us. And may be your scent and your smell that people see in us, drawing them to yourself. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.